logistical nightmare. More than 10% of the world's trade travels through Egypt's Suez Canal, which links Europe and Asia. But since Tuesday, it's been completely blocked after a huge cargo ship ran aground. And at around 200,000 tons and over 400 meters long, the container, where it's going to take some shifting. 50 ships a day normally pass through the canal, carrying 12% of the world's trade. So the pressure is really on to get her refloated. This is one of the biggest disruptions that we've seen in maritime shipping since, uh, well, for a very long time, tens of years, because, you know, this has been going on for really over a year now. It started all with Chinese New Year in 2020, when the Chinese ports were congested and uh, production facilities in China were closed. On March 23rd, the Ever Given container ship topped headlines and became a global meme when it grounded itself across the Suez Canal. This massive ship not only blocked waterways, but billions of dollars in trade. It also exposed deep vulnerabilities in the global shipping infrastructure, from potential proxy wars to GPS spoofing attacks to accidents like the ever given blockage. Today we ask, how can disruptions in our supply chains create ripple effects around the world? This is State of the World, produced by the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. I'm your host, Amanda Jolly. And on this episode, we're talking with Elizabeth Bra resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute about the fragility of our global shipping infrastructure. Moderated by Council CEO, Megan Torrey. We're so happy that Elizabeth is joining us today from London with uh, this really timely topic. So let's dive right in. Recently, the world was fixed on what was happening in the Suez Canal with the with the Ever Given. Can you kind of walk us through what happened? Yes, well, thank you for having me, uh, for, the, for the invitation, Megan, and, and it's nice to meet you all. So what happened was that this uh, super freighter carrying around 20,000 uh, containers um, got stuck in the Suez Canal. And it's uh, as we all know, it's not a very big canal. It's actually a very narrow canal. And so it takes... Uh, considerable skill to, to pilot uh, the, uh, any ship through it, and especially these super freighters. And we should remember that, that ships, uh, container ships have been getting bigger even in, in just the past 10 years or so. So it used to be that, that, uh, that the largest one carried 10,000 containers, and now it's um, or what's called TEU, so 20-foot equivalent containers. Now it's 20,000, they may even get, get bigger, so up to 24,000. These are massive, massive, massive ships and and uh, if if one of those uh, especially those really large ones steers them but of course then there is a risk they get stuck in in a, in a very narrow, narrow canal like the Suez canal which is what happened and and because there are so many ships coming into to the world's uh, canals every single day if one gets stuck then there is a, a queue I mean it's like a red traffic light where, where front cars are moving and that's what happened so let's talk about some of the immediate consequences of the block. How did it disrupt global supply chains and all and all of the other ships that were going in both directions? Yeah. So uh, on within any given twenty four hour period, you have about you have more than fifty ships uh, traveling through the Suez Canal. So obviously, if 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 the canal is blocked, then you have. Uh, 50 times how many days the ship is blocking the canal, you have that number of ships waiting to, to enter. And so what happened was that you, in the end, had lots and lots and lots of container ships waiting to enter, uh, but you also had lots of, of others saying or, or being told by their shipping companies uh, not to wait around because we have to remember it was unclear whether it would take 
two days or, or uh, six or seven days, which is what it was in the end, uh, or months to to get the Ever Given uh, unstuck. So um, several hundred ships decided to, to take the longer route uh, down by the South African coast and the, the, uh, the Cape of Good Hope. And uh, that, of course, uh, takes much, much, much longer. So uh, whether they were waiting or whether they were taking the longer route, it led to delays. And, and uh, as a result, uh, we still have tens of thousands of tons of, of goods that haven't arrived where they were supposed to arrive. And it, I think it, it, that illustrates how, uh, how perfectly timed shipping is. It's, a, it, it's calculated to arrive at just the, the right time where the recipient needs it and can transport it on, the, the, the receiving party, in, in which will then transport it on. Um, to to the end uh, customer, which may be uh, a company, and then eventually people like you and me, uh, if it's not a retailer. So so all of this is minutely organized, and and it works perfectly as long as there isn't a disruption. And in this case, it was a uh, sort of a benign disruption, you might call it, because it was it was just caused by by human error. But if you think about what else could go wrong, it's quite frightening, actually. We know that some of the ships that were sort of waiting behind were carrying live animals and livestock, right, which which poses uh, a threat for them. Do we have any idea what was on the Ever Given? I've read, you know, maybe some men's clothes, um, some ginger. Do we know? Um, we know it was on its way to Rotterdam. Do we know what was on it? Oh, it was basically anything you can imagine that can be transported. Uh, auto parts, it was uh, furniture, it was live animals, as you said, up to 200,000 live animals. And it's still unclear how many of those survived. Obviously, they were transported to be slaughtered eventually, but you would hope that they would have a, a somewhat less painful death being slaughtered in a slaughterhouse than than. So, suffocating or starving to death on the ship that's stuck waiting to, to, to travel through the Suez Canal. So it's, that's really uh, heartbreaking. Um, and then all the way from, from autoparts and live animals to, to furniture and, and beer, lots of beer apparently, and, and, and clothing. Basically anything we need for our daily lives goes into these containers. So that really highlights and illuminates the broader issue of the fragility of our global shipping in infrastructure. So you wrote in um, the foreign policy article, the ever given unintended blockade of the narrow canal has caused a profoundly sea blind global public to take sudden interest in global shipping. Though the ship has now been freed and the issue resolved, what lesson does the world need to take away from this event? I know so many of us don't think about how our goods get to us. Now, what can we learn from this blockade? But we should learn not to take deliveries for granted. So it's so easy to say, oh, I ordered this on Amazon or uh, whatever, whichever firm you like to use. And, and uh, I ordered, you know, super quick delivery. And uh, yeah, that's that's fine. But we, we should think about all the people involved in getting uh, the product that you'd like to have within hours or maybe uh, days all the people involved in getting it to you. And that starts with the people involved in making it. So let's say you order a pair of shoes. That pair of shoes may travel between several countries as it's being uh, made because it's not it's not a shoemaker making it in his home factory anymore. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a global supply chain even making those shoes and they may travel between several countries. Then they travel to the country where those shoes will be sold possibly. Um, uh, in, in which case you may order it from your local shoe shop, or if you, if you order it online, you can order it from another country. Regardless, at some point it arrives, 
those shoes arrive in a ship and then they have to be transported somewhere near you and then the end uh, so the, the, the final mile as it's called is taken care of by by a delivery guy right and and all of this has to to work and then so it's it's easy to get angry and say well you know my shoes were an hour late but actually the fact that all of this works most of the time is is a miracle and and the reason that it works or the reason that we that we use it so much is that it works so well but i think if, if there is anything we should learn is that we shouldn't take for granted that it works well we should also think about all the people involved in making that happen in in sort of delivering all these goods to us that that we have become so used to just having delivered to us and and we should remember that that each of those steps if if that some if, if one steps if one step doesn't work then we don't receive our goods so yeah let's talk about the magnitude of global shipping for those who might not know how much trade and commerce passes through global waterways um, and relies on maritime shipping yes yeah, so it's it's massive so it, we can just think about uh, uh, Mask, which is a Danish company that's the world's largest container shipping company. It has uh, 600 of these really uh, enormous vessels that travel around the travel the world's oceans every single day. Um, so every uh, 15 minutes, a Mask ship docks somewhere, and, and they carry up to 20,000 of these containers that that contain every conceivable good. In 2017, Mask was by um, a cyber attack that originated in Russia. It was a Russian attack against Ukraine. And then it, the, the, this, this virus traveled on, it's, it's uh, called NotPetya, it was called NotPetya, and then traveled on and struck Mask and, and other global companies, including Mondelez, which is based in, in uh, Illinois. Uh, it tra- it uh, hit uh, uh, Merck and, and others. But anyway, the the uh, I think that the worst damage that it did was hitting uh, Mask because uh, and, and uh, Mask's IT network went completely dark, which meant that those 600 ships couldn't go anywhere. And, and so you had all these sort of uh, uh, journeys involving 20,000 containers each time that couldn't happen. And, and just to give you an example um, of, of, and this is uh, just one snapshot, one port, that's the port of Rotterdam, which is, uh, one of the largest ports in Europe, but it's not one of the 10 largest in the world because those are all in, in Asia and there's one in the UAE. So here uh, today in Rotterdam, uh, 24 ships are still uh, expected, are still arriving. And so it's it's now uh, quarter past six in Rotterdam. 34 ships will still arrive. There are 115 already docked and 175 have departed already today. So that's, uh, it, you can calculate that um, uh, per hour. So that's, um, somebody can do the maths quickly, but it's, <laughs> it's a lot of ships every single hour. And uh, let me just give you another uh, figure here. It's from the port of Los Angeles, which is uh, one of the world's 20 largest, not one of the 10 largest, one of the 20 largest. Last year, it processed 800,000 uh, TU, so uh, shipping containers, 800,000. That's <laughs> that's an enormous figure. So if you divide that by, by 20,000, which is the largest ships today, uh, that's so 800,000 uh, divided by 20,000, that's uh, what, 400, I think. Uh, so 400 of these ships every single, uh, every single, well, last year. Um, so it's, um, it's, it's, 
enormous enormous quantities and as i said uh, the the um the arriving and departing is just one aspect it's also what do they what do these ships do while they are traveling what sort of uh, vulnerabilities are they are there while they are traveling the world sees that that's something that concerns me and and so all of this means uh, my point is that there are vulnerabilities every step of the way that we don't see because we are land dwellers and we just click somewhere and, and think that it's going to arrive without any problems. If I understand it correctly, only about 12% of maritime shipping goes through the Suez Canal. Um, are there other geographical um, choke points that make shipping vulnerability? And I know that Admiral Stavridis just recently published something in Time that spoke to his idea of what, what maybe some of those geographical um, vulnerabilities would be. But from your perspective, uh, where are some of the other choke points? Yeah, so the world's canals are obviously choke points because they, they can't be made much wider. Obviously, the, yeah, the Suez Canal has been made been made a bit wider, but I mean you can't uh, you can't change uh, geography. So so those are choke points, but they're also ports um, because if you if you think about if if you were a hostile country, for example, and you wanted to cause damage. You would certainly uh, try to um, disrupt port operations. I mean, if we think about, uh, sorry, I'm focusing on the port of Rotterdam, but it, it has fantastic information every single day. So, you know, if, if a hostile country were to try something with the port of Rotterdam, um, so uh, 300, more than 300 ships coming and going today or, or uh, still being docked, <laughs> you can cause. <laughs> huge damage so with ever given we are talking about one ship and with a port we are talking about hundreds that you could essentially affect at the same time because even if you just if you just uh, manage to disrupt uh, uh, the operations of, of the ones or the, the operations in the port itself that means that all those ships waiting to, to come in can't come in and we get uh, ever given disruptions uh, multiplied many, many, many times over. So ports are something I worry about. And, and I would also, I don't want to sort of uh, stretch the point too far, but if you think about people working in ports, I mean, if you were a hostile country, you could essentially incentivize port workers not to turn up for work. And yeah, we would be stuck because we depend on them. We can't do anything without them. Obviously, today, we don't have the people sort of carrying the cargo on their backs the way it used to be in the past. Instead, you know, they sit in, in they're essentially lift operators. But without them, we are stuck. So as a result, we know uh, that this big delay was a really big deal, and a lot of uh, shipping companies don't have uh, necessarily delay insurance, right? Do you think that sort of shipping insurance is now going to become more costly, um, and will that impact the price uh, in the distribution of goods? Yeah, so insurance is one of those subjects that nobody likes to talk about because it's so boring, and, and it's Every time somebody sort of thinks about insurance, it's about home insurance. Oh, yeah, I mean, I, I should take care of it or car insurance, what have you. And it's, it's just a pain and nobody wants to think about it. And equally, you know, how many people worry about shipping insurance? Nobody. But just like you can't drive a car without having car insurance, these, these ships can't travel without insurance. And there are different kinds of insurance, obviously, for different sort of um, things that could happen. And... Because, our, because delays are so rare, most of them, turns out, if they didn't have delay insurance, because usually delays are only 
so far have only been caused by uh, the, the the ship or the crew itself. And, and you know, if, if you're well equipped and, and and do what you need to do, then you wouldn't call you you wouldn't have any delays. But this again demonstrates that delays can be caused by lots of other things that have nothing to do with with the crew uh, itself or or any anything involving the company that's actually operating the ship. So that's one aspect. Then. Um, I don't know how many people on this call remember the Stena Impera incident in uh, the Strait of Hormuz, I think it was two years ago. So it was a, a Swedish ship uh, uh, flying under uh, UK flag uh, with, with a crew consisting of uh, Russians, Indians, uh, and I think a Latvian guy. Um, it was uh, seized by the Iranian authorities on, on they alleged some sort of... Uh, mistake or, or or infraction by the crew so and, and it was uh, seized and held for a number of weeks as a result of that uh, shipping insurance went up because obviously insurers are thinking about you know what do we do if uh, we get these sort of delays and then obviously we have to recover our costs because we uh, the insurer pays if something goes wrong um so these are i mean it's it, it sounds really boring but without insurance we, we can't really do anything because nobody will dare to operate uh, or, or to drive a car or to steer a ship through the world's oceans without uh, the peace of mind that comes with having insurance. So it, the fragility of global shipping is extremely clear. But another thing that you've outlined um, are threats to global shipping infrastructure that sort of go under the radar. Um, let's talk a little bit about these. And one of them I want you to talk about is proxy wars. Um, you know, and uh, it's a very specific threat uh, that can be used as a tool. Can you explain the threat of proxy wars in shipping and maybe give us an example of how this could play out on the global stage? Yeah, so proxy wars are really just a, um, a term for when uh, governments, when they try to harm another country, but not doing so themselves, but by using uh, another sort of entity. So it can be... Uh, Proxies can be uh, hackers, so they're freelancing for for another government for that particular government. It can also be uh, militia groups. It can be basically anybody that that government commissions to do the work on its behalf. And and um, and that's uh, I think uh, also really um, something that we should be concerned about in shipping because you could have groups essentially targeting civilian shipping, which we have to remember is uh, it's completely unprotected. You have the right to, to sail through the world's waters without being attacked, but there's there's no Navy big enough that can protect every single commercial uh, vessel out there. So they are on their own and they sort of rely on everybody to, to follow the rules, which again, opens the, the opportunity for these uh, proxy groups working on, on behalf of another government to, to uh, disrupt or destroy or otherwise uh, harm this uh, civilian shipping. And so, for example, we, we have seen um, Iranian vessels uh, being, uh, there was an explosion on one the other day and there was a, a missile attack uh, on another one. And, and so nobody knows really what that's all about or who did it and nobody has claimed responsibility. Uh, but it again demonstrates how really civilian ships are, are sitting ducks and and as I said, not even the U.S. Navy is big enough to, to patrol around everywhere to, to accompany every single vessel. Uh, so that's something we should be concerned about. Another thing I, I, I think should be highlighted is, is the risk of um, 
uh, misnavigation or GPS spoofing. I don't know if yep. you wanted to come to that later, but it's uh, incredibly important. Yes, yeah, so I was actually going to ask you about spoofing next. So can you talk a little bit about spoofing, what it is, and then how hostile nations or non-state actors can deploy this approach, um, and specifically when it comes to international shipping? Yeah, so in past, uh, I was going to say generations, but in past centuries, seafarers relied on, on obviously, on celestial navigation, and they, yeah, they oriented themselves following the, the stars, and, 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 um, and the sun, which incidentally is why so many um, so many sailors had a had an eye patch, right? Because they had been staring into the sun. It's not that they had been in sort of some sort of battle. It's it's because they had been staring into the sun. So that's that's the past. Then came GPS, and then everything became much easier because GPS is perfect. You can you can navigate with much greater precision. But of course, the moment you're dependent on technology, you're also making yourself vulnerable to somebody messing with that technology. And that's what has been happening. And, and uh, all seafarers or captains, I should say, and then and sort of officer, the, the officer class of seafarers, they all know how to use uh, the, the traditional instruments and celestial navigations. So it's not like they would end up um, you know, like Christopher Columbus, they wouldn't end up in, in, in America if they were trying to go to India or something like that. But they can get, if they don't, without GPS, or if GPS, um, but, so they, they are very good at, at, at navigating with these traditional tools. GPS helps them uh, navigate with, with fantastic precision. But if somebody messes with the GPS, they, they are likely to know, I mean, they are guaranteed to notice it because uh, as I said, they, they know how to use traditional instruments and they wouldn't end up in, in, on a completely different continent or a completely different ocean. But it's enough that they end up just slightly off where they were intending to be. And all of a sudden they could be uh, in another country's territorial waters. And, and that country could that then sort of claim that uh, you, know, you have strayed into our waters without permission and now we are seizing your vessel, which seems to have been the case with, um, as, it, as it happens with Estena Imperial. It did apparently stray into um, the wrong side of where, where it was going to be. And that seems to have been the result of, of GPS. And so you can imagine, let's say, if, if China wanted to, to um, play a really dirty game, it could mess with the GPS of, of uh, civilian uh, vessels traveling near Chinese territorial waters and then claim that, oh, you're in the wrong place and, and now we're gonna seize your vessels because uh, you don't have permission to be here. So it's, it's uh, it, if you wanted to disrupt shipping, the, the space is wide open for, <laughs> for all sorts of nastiness. So sort of a global shipping cyber attack, if you will. So we know that in two, in 2018 is when the Ever Given was built. And at the time, it was one of the largest ships. And since then, there have been even bigger ships. And the demand for shipping continues to grow. Um, is this a sustainable solution to, ad to address global shipping? Um, will the world need to look at other solutions to carry shipments uh, abroad or do you think that eventually we'll see people looking to manufacture goods closer, closer in geography to where they are? Yeah, I mean, we are already seeing the, the development towards uh, even larger vessels, but I, I think it's, it's clear why shipping companies are, are going in this direction because the margins in shipping are so small that, that you need that sort of volume in order to, to make any money on, on on your shipping, uh, and so it makes it's it's logical from that point of view. But I, the the point is that, uh, and I think 
it, this relates not just to you know twenty thousand TEU vessels, but but shipping in general. Do we really need all these goods to be uh, brought to us from other countries? It creates this really, as we have discussed, vulnerable supply chain. It also relies on on people, uh, lots of people from from uh, poorer countries who may in in five or 10 years time, not be willing or able to do this work anymore. And it also relies on, on people, again, in poor countries to make the goods for us. Just to, uh, and, and all of this has to be done very cheaply so that we can get the, get the goods more cheaply than if they were manufactured in, in, in the US or the UK or what have you. But I think that the, the, the most sustainable solution is to, to buy more local. Um, and obviously, that uh, the, the Pressure would have to come from consumers for, for manufacturers to, to say, okay, I'm going to shift my supply chain and, and reduce its exposure or its its reliance on, on foreign components. And then I, I will do as much of it as I as I can here in the US or whatever the, the country may be. But I can't see how it can be sustainable to ship uh, items, uh, components, completed goods several rounds, several times around the globe until they reach us and still less expensive than they than they would have been if if they were manufactured uh right in 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 our home countries so we're running out of time and so i want to give you an opportunity to sort of end with the broader picture you know what are the biggest lessons we can learn from what happened what are what should some of the takeaway takeaways be um from this incident with the ever given what do we need to know about those that work on the seas what do we need to know about about our goods yeah, I think we should try to cure our sea blindness, and that's something we can do individually. That doesn't sort of involve any, any government action. We can think about where the goods come from that we consume, and, and we, can, we can say, well, do I really need to buy? And then it, often it says on, on the product where it was made, and, and uh, that's just the end country. Uh, likely, very likely before that has been through several other countries through this supply chain. But I think we, we should develop more consumer awareness and, and say, you know, uh, do I need to, to buy this product that uh, has at, at the very, very least been assembled in another country? Or, and, and do I need to buy fruit from another country? Obviously, the U.S. is well set up with, with fruit, from, fruit from all parts of, of the U.S., but still a lot of fruit is important. Do we really need that? And I think buying more local is, is better for ourselves because it, it's, uh, yeah, you know what you get. It's also better for the people in those, uh, in those countries, obviously, uh, they may lose some of their production, but they also won't be under that enormous pressure to, to make cheap goods, and they may be able to make more um, sort of higher quality goods. And, and lastly, uh, we don't we wouldn't put as much much pressure on our oceans and our ports, which if we if we if this continues, our ports will have to expand even more. And and so we would end up. Uh, I don't know which cities would be. Uh, would have those sort of resources to, to expand uh, the ports even or which ports would have the resources to expand even, even more. So it's, it's too cheap. Let's, let's, um, let's focus on quality rather than price. Elizabeth, thank you so much for joining us on State of the World today. We'll have to invite Elizabeth back again, uh, and I'm looking forward to that. That was resident fellow at AEI, Elizabeth Bra. You can follow her on Twitter at Elizabeth Bra and check out her recent article for Foreign Policy. Without shipping, the global economy sinks. That does it for this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. For more, and if you'd like to join us for future live events, follow the World Affairs Council of Connecticut on Twitter and Instagram at CTWAC, or visit our website at ctwac.org. 
This episode was produced by Caroline Schaefer at the World Affairs Council of Connecticut. Thank you for joining us for State of the World. Until next time.